welcome to Crashing the War Party. This is our last episode of 2021, and I cannot believe I am saying that because I really don't know where 2021 went. It was a blur, but I can honestly say I had a great time with Dan and Barbara Bolin, who joined us in the earlier part of the year. We've had a ton of interesting guests talking about everything from Afghanistan and the new Cold War with China to corrupt swampy politics in the blobosphere in Washington. There was never a dull moment in the foreign policy and national security realm. And even though most of the country seemed distracted at all times by election politics and Trump and Biden's first few months in office, there was plenty going on to show that the military industrial complex was as intent as ever to sustain the status quo. This year was all about great power politics, Russia and China, and how the US would meet the challenge with bigger defense budgets and military deterrence, of course. We're going to be talking to the great Robert Wright, author and host of Blogging Heads TV and the popular non-zero newsletter about all of this later. But first, a very much more sobering story. The New York Times this weekend published a lengthy report about a secret kill team inside a classified commando task force, which was responsible for launching thousands of missiles and bombs against the ISIS targets in Syria from 2014 to 2019. The unit was known as Talon Anvil, and according to sources who spoke to the New York Times, in the process of hammering a, quote, vicious enemy, the shadowy force sidestepped safeguards and repeatedly killed civilians. People who worked with the strike cell said in the rush to destroy enemies, it circumvented rules imposed to protect non-combatants and alarmed its partners in the military and the CIA by killing people who had no role in the conflict, like farmers trying to harvest, children in the streets, families fleeing fighting, and villagers sheltering in buildings. Quote, they were ruthlessly efficient and good at their jobs, said one former Air Force intelligence officer who worked on some of those classified missions, but they made a lot of bad mistakes, end quote. Dan, this is even worse than the report about the task force itself being responsible for upwards of 80 civilian deaths in one Burgoos Syria bombing in 2019. So what are we seeing here? Is this part of a drip drip revelation of the real U.S. operation in Syria over the last five years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we had already known uh, from earlier reporting as uh, different journalists had investigated claims of civilian deaths in Iraq and Syria from the the, uh, counter-ISIS bombing campaign, uh, that civilian casualties from that campaign were much, much higher than official estimates uh, allowed for or admitted to. Uh, And, 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 you know, by by factor of, you know, a a thousand times greater than what was officially being admitted to. Uh, And so this is is fleshing out some of the details of, of how that happened. Uh, and and how uh, it was that so often uh, U.S. forces were being used uh, to to strike at targets that had nothing to do uh, with ISIS, had nothing to do with terrorism, had nothing to do with with threatening U.S. forces. Uh, one of the things that I found particularly troubling about this report uh, was the way that they basically they, the way they skirted the rules was to claim almost everything was self defense, uh, and and to use the self defense justification uh, to give them much more latitude in what they could strike and when they could strike. Uh, because if you're, if you're using force to defend your own people, uh, you're, you're given a greater latitude than if you're engaging in offensive action, which I mean, sort of intuitively makes sense. 
but as this report shows, it can be badly abused uh, to basically give you carte blanche to do whatever you want. And then that's how it was used. Uh, so th there were uh, many incidents contained in the report uh, that, were, that were quite uh, appalling. There were cases of, of refugees trying to cross a river that were targeted uh, and were killed, uh, women and children sheltering in a building, uh, having nothing to do with any any militants or, or terrorists, and uh, they were also killed. Uh, and, and one of the most revealing details, I think, is that they started to make a habit of turning the drone camera away uh, from the things that they were striking in order to minimize the evidence of what it was they were striking. Uh, and I think Spencer Ackerman uh, referred to this as the, the equivalent of the global policeman turning off his body camera. Right. And, and, that, and I think that's, you know, that sums it up pretty well. This is uh, a case where they, you know, they, they know what they were doing broke the rules. They know what they were doing was uh, criminal, uh, but they, they did it anyway because uh, essentially they, they were allowed to get away with it. And they were doing this, this strike cell was operating for five years. So just just imagine how many incidents like this, uh, like like the ones I mentioned, have happened, and and so you're going to end up talking about hundreds and maybe thousands of victims, uh, and and all of this taking place as part of a campaign that was billed by the military as the most precise, most humane of all time, uh, when when clearly it was it was anything but that. Right, exactly, and I think in in the piece, and I'm going to find the little passage here. Uh, they address that. They say the military build the war, the air war against the Islamic State as the most precise and humane in military history and says strict rules and oversight by top leaders kept civilian deaths to a minimum despite a ferocious pace of bombing. Now, we've heard that consistently over the last 20 years of the war. Whenever any question comes up about the droning campaigns and civilian deaths and collateral uh, damage, it's you know, we are taking the utmost caution. And in reality, reports the New York Times, four current and former military officials say the majority of strikes were ordered not by top leaders, but by relatively low ranking U.S. Army Delta Force commandos in Talon Anvil. So it, it wasn't, you know, the this shows the massive disconnect of the reality here where we are being told that decisions are being made by top commanders um, in the in the case of Obama's drone program, that the decisions were actually being made out of the White House, that, that Obama had a kill list that he had to approve every week. And that gave this, this sort of idea, this sense that this was this was a sobering process in which each target had been vetted. Uh, for for legality and for ethics and and for and for evidence and and, and weighing all the the prospects and and what you have here is low level delta commandos actually making the decisions and then we have people former officials and CIA now let that sink in for a second the CIA were alarmed by um, the the recklessness of these bombings and that civilians were being caught in the crosshairs. Uh, and targeted specifically in many of these cases. And so I do think, you know, this, you know, and and we had a great video up at uh, Quincy in which Adam Weinstein had interviewed Jack Murphy, who is a, a combat veteran, 
journalist and author now. And Jack was, and we're talking about Afghanistan, Jack was pretty candid about the fact that commanders on the ground were basically writing their own rules when it came to targeting and strikes because they wanted to win. And in their minds, in the military's minds, that their hands had been tied for too long. And that the, you know, the real issue was the, the military being able to target terrorists when they saw them and be able to go after them and not have to go through these legal layers, these, the, uh, the bureaucracy. And it became a situation where it's hearkening back to the uh, body counts of, of Vietnam, where commanders were actually pushing to have more strikes more kills. And this was this flew in the face of all the messages that were being conveyed to the American people back home. And I feel like that carried over to Syria. I would be very curious to see how Jack Murphy responds to this latest story, because it seems to, to me that this was all playing out in Afghanistan, uh, but it was also playing out in Syria at the same time. Unfortunately, uh, nobody was looking and all of this was classified. Right. And, well, and I think in the report, uh, they talked to, to Larry Lewis, who has worked in the government in the past on uh, trying to reduce civilian casualties in, in these sorts of bombing campaigns. Uh, and, and he made a point of uh, mentioning or, or he observed that the, the strike rate uh, in Syria uh, was something like 10 times what it was in Afghanistan. So as bad as it was in Afghanistan, and it, it was that many times worse oh, uh, in Syria because, because of, the, of the sheer frequency of the attacks that were taking place. And so, uh, and, and I think in the report, he, he says that he was, uh, he was particularly disturbed by how uh, the numbers of these uh, questionable strikes or, or bad strikes increased over time, right? This wasn't a case of, they, they made a lot of mistakes initially and started to correct the mistakes that they were making. And so that the, the incidents decreased in number. Uh, it was going in the opposite direction, uh, and, and I think, and part of that I think had to do, especially during the Trump administration, with this idea of uh, you know bombing the hell out of ISIS and and taking all of the uh, taking the gloves off and, and letting the military do uh, whatever it wanted, uh, because there you know, there was that idea uh, coming out of the Obama years uh, that they had they had held back too much, uh, when and I think. The, the story of this strike cell shows that there was actually a lot more continuity between the two administrations uh, when it came to fighting the war in Syria uh, than we may have realized. Um, and so that's, uh, th that goes to what you're saying. And, you know, and I, and this is probably going to be a first for this show and, 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 and for me in, in many years, but I really appreciate what the New York times has done here because it, it, it seems as though that they had to spend an inordinate amount of time uh, cultivating sources inside the military, inside the government to get this story. And so when we read that story uh, a few weeks ago or a month ago on the Burgoos bombing, everybody was aghast. Oh my goodness, 80 civilians killed. Uh, and um, the, there were other military who said that they, that they, they couldn't believe what they were witnessing that uh, that this was a rogue uh, task force that nobody knew about. And, you know, the, the, the DOD jumped in, you know, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin announced an investigation into this. And, you know, we were all talking about it. We talked about it on this show. 
Well, it seems that, you know, the New York Times had just gotten started because that was just the tip of the iceberg, that one bombing. But you just mentioned, Dan, about the thousands of attacks, the untold number of civilians killed. You know, the, the, the number of officials in different agencies and in the military on the ground uh, sounding the alarms and not being listened to. I mean, this is a huge story that we would have not been privy to if the New York Times didn't send a team of reporters and and and, and do due diligence and and getting and getting all of this uncovered. So I'm I'm a little afraid about what else we're going to hear. And I'm just I'm happy. I, I'm so happy that this is 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 actually coming to light. Because I feel as though we are about to enter a new era of counter counterinsurgency, counterterrorism in in the Middle East and Af- in, in Central Asia, Asia, following the Afghan withdrawal. All this talk about oh, we got to be vigilant about you know the power vacuum there and the and the terrorist cells coming back and everything. And I feel without there being a constant monitoring or questioning. Uh, scrutinization of the drone program in the Biden administration, this would just continue unabated. Yeah, and I, I think that's right. And when uh, we had seen earlier uh, a lot of the great reporting that had been done uh, concerning the, the Kabul uh, drone strike that killed those 10 people right at the end of the withdrawal. Um, and you know, unfortunately, while the, the, the press has done great work in exposing this stuff and, and uh, the public has... Uh, seem to respond to it uh, with you know, the appropriate horror, uh, we're still not seeing anything in the, in the shape of accountability uh, from the military. So, and we have to ask, what, you know, where is Congress in all of this? Where, where is their oversight role? Uh, when all of this has been happening, uh, you don't see anybody from Congress, uh, at least I, I haven't seen very many people from Congress raising hell about this, which, which is what they ought to be doing. They, they need to be getting to the bottom of of how common this is, of, of uh, why it keeps happening. And you know, I think that attitude that from the quote that you mentioned from the report, where the, someone was saying, these guys are good at their jobs. Well, clearly they're not good at their jobs. If they're just dropping missiles and, and, and bombs uh, willy-nilly on any target they can find, uh, they're, they're not good at their jobs. And, and that has to be driven home, that this is not, that they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so I, I, you know, it was, it was disheartening to see uh, the, the follow-up story about the Kabul drone strike where uh, the Pentagon decided that basically nobody did anything wrong. Uh, no one will be held accountable. No one will be brought up on charges, certainly. Uh, and, and that's how this is allowed to continue to happen uh, because there are no penalties uh, or, or consequences for the people that end up killing civilians uh, when they, they easily could have avoided doing so. Our guest today is Bob Wright. He is the author of The Evolution of God, Non-Zero, The Moral Animal, and Why Buddhism is True. He is also the host of The Wright Show podcast, and he publishes the Non-Zero newsletter on Substack. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Uh, I've always enjoyed reading your stuff. And uh, lately, you've been writing a lot about the foreign policy blob, uh, as as its critics like to call it, and how to define it. Uh, you've come up with a list of several beliefs and mental habits that you think mark members of the blob as an identifiable group uh, distinct from, from others. 
And these include threat inflation, Manichaeanism, and American exceptionalism, among others. Uh, when you look at American reactions to current foreign policy problems, what are some examples of this blobby mentality in action that you see? Well, in terms of threat inflation, I mean, only last week there was this Wall Street Journal article about uh, right. concerns uh, in the United States, in the White House and the Pentagon, that maybe uh, China was going to build a military base in Equatorial Guinea, which, if you look at a map, is as far away from America's East Coast as China itself is from America's West Coast. So they're not getting right. closer. But but I mean, the uh, and, you know, the the. The reporter, you know, wrote on Twitter that this had set off a five alarm, you know, uh, kind of uh, hysteria in uh, in uh, in Washington. Um, and, you know, it's just pretty typical. And, and it's interesting to kind of look at the components of something like that. On the one hand, you have the journalistic incentive to get clicks for your story. So you're going to kind of hype it a little. I mean, the story itself is hyped a little, and then they go out on Twitter and hype it a little further. Um, yeah. But I, I don't doubt that that the Pentagon and the White House is expressing grave concern. And of course, we should keep track of stuff like that. But uh, but but so I would say that's an example of uh, of threat inflation. Uh, and, and then you know we had the democracy summit, uh, and that's not unrelated to monarchism. In other words, you know, seeing the world as a struggle uh, between good and evil, um, the idea that uh, all of the countries we deem democracies, although that, of course, can be a, a tough judgment call, uh, are on the side of good, and their mission is to oppose the countries that don't make the cut. My own view is that that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in fact, we saw that uh, the day the, the Democracy Summit uh, launched, I think Nicaragua announced that it was transferring, you know, it was, was going to recognize, uh, you know, mainland China as the one true China rather than Taiwan. It was transferring it, its diplomatic recognition. And to me, that's the kind of response you can expect uh, if a you uh you know you declare you know you 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 create some kind of de facto league of democracies and b if you're if you're sanctioning uh countries like nicaragua and and china and russia and so on well naturally they're gonna you know all the countries being sanctioned are going to get together and make sure they've got solid ties with countries that aren't going to sanction them and, and and uh so you know you can just pretty much pick a week and right. and see the blob in in fine working order. Definitely, and, and I think we both wrote about that Equatorial Guinea story because it was so uh, ridiculous. What uh, one of the other things on your list of characteristics or, or uh, habits uh, that you you mentioned is a hypocrisy when it comes to international law and norms. And I was thinking about this recently when we we see the the fears of Russian attack a Russian attack on Ukraine. Uh, happening at the same time that everyone is floating these ideas of an, a U.S. or Israeli attack on Iran. And they're talked about in very different ways, right? The, the, the threat of a Russian attack would be a grave threat to international peace and security, and I agree that it would be. Uh, but when we talk about an attack on Iran, it's not talked about in the same way. It's talked about much more uh, clinically or, or as, a, as a, you know, just one option among many and not any worse or better. Uh, it's, it's a very... 
it's a very clear case, I think, of, of where that double standard is uh, at work. Uh, well, what do you think? No, I, I certainly agree. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, a pretty pervasive asymmetry in the reporting about, about Iran. Uh, I mean, one, one story you see repeatedly is, is about the so-called shadow war between Iran mm-hmm. and Israel. Right. And they always they always uh, make it sound at best, uh, you know, kind of symmetrical, uh, you know, and at worst as if Iran is the main culprit. But I think if you look at the actual incidents of violent attacks and uh, really dramatic and damaging cyber attacks, to my knowledge, uh, these much more often emanate from Israel. I mean, Israel assassinates uh People in Iran, they launch uh, attacks on Syria, which I think is a sovereign country in principle. And so every attack is in that sense a violation of international law, unless it's unless it's a counterattack, which it never is, as so far as I know. Um, right. And they kill and they kill both Iranians uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, forces allied with Iran in Syria. And, and this this goes without notice almost. In American media, and then if Iran ever does something in, re- in in retaliation, that's a story, right? Which doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's a big story, right? Well, and, and that and that affects us too, because as uh, I think our listeners will be aware, uh, when uh, Israel launches these attacks on Iranians in Syria, uh, Iranians or their uh, proxies will sometimes take their retaliation out on our forces in Syria, and the, and. They've had we've had drone attacks on the base at Tanf in southeastern Syria uh, in direct response to Israeli actions, uh, but but that connection often doesn't get made. Um, t- turning to uh, another point, uh, one of the things that you emphasize a lot in your writing is the importance of cognitive empathy, which mm-hmm. is to say understanding how others see the world. And I've been struck by how little American officials and analysts try to understand the thinking of people in rival governments. Uh, and that severely limits their ability to devise effective policies. Uh, thinking about uh, defining the blob, would you say that lacking cognitive empathy in act in practice is another trait uh, that that you could identify the blob by? Absolutely, uh, and it's kind of puzzling. You know, I wrote about this in the in the last issue of my newsletter. You know, the fact that there is a robust academic literature uh, that you'd think some of the blobsters would have been exposed to in college, right? I mean, the occasion for my writing this piece was the death last week of Robert Jervis, who was a political scientist at Columbia, who had uh, studied, you know, the so-called security dilemma when one side builds up its forces. And even if that's defensive in intent, it can pose a de facto offensive threat and and so uh, inspire counter buildup and so on. And, and, and Jervis emphasized that often this, this problem is compounded by by uh, uh, by misperception, um, and and uh, and and it just strikes me that this whole framework uh, for analyzing international re- relations is so underused by uh, journalists, think tankers, people in the in the State Department, uh, in the White House. You know, in other words, to to uh, to do what what Jervis and other academics routinely do, which is in a case like Ukraine, um, say uh, okay for starters, uh, 
you know, seizing Crimea is a violation of international law. I am a total stickler for international law, uh, but let's at least try to understand why this happened. And and you had a situation where uh, a democratically elected pro-Russian president was deposed in a manner that Putin could plausibly think, uh, you know, the U.S. was behind. I mean, we did have Victoria Nuland, high-ranking State Department official, recorded secretly by the Russians, basically conspiring to decide who the successor government was going to be once the guy was deposed. And and then, and so suddenly you've got this uh, pro-American, in Putin's view, American-installed government in Ukraine, and the status of a, a, a really important naval base in Crimea is now in question, right? This is where the, where the, the Black Sea fleet is, is based. And uh, so Putin, you know, he takes Crimea. Again, I don't like violations of international law. I mean, I would add that this, this he didn't really have to do a lot of work to take it. It's, it's, a, it's an overwhelmingly Russian-speaking population that, that's very Russian-sympathetic. Uh, Crimea actually, uh, even within the USSR, it was part of Russia until the 1950s when Khrushchev transferred it to the Ukrainian Republic. So there's all kinds of background information here uh, that would lead you to interpret what Putin did as something other than the work of the next Hitler, right? As something other than, than being, you know, somebody who's on an expansionist rampage. But you just don't, you just don't see that background information uh, in in the U.S. in the U.S. media. Uh, there was a pretty good piece last week by Stephen Erlanger in the New York Times in the sense that it at least conveyed that NATO's expansion had been seen as a threat by Putin. But even it just kind of passed over, alluded to the, uh, the, the, the Ukraine uh, thing at, without getting into in details I think are really important in understanding, you know, where Putin's head is right now. Yeah, and this is Kelly. Thank you so much, Bob, for coming on the show. I'm a big fan of uh, Non-Zero and all your well, other- I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing, let me say. I mean, I listen to the oh. podcast and, and you're doing God's work. Well, thank you. Uh, you mentioned Victoria Newland, and I just wanted you're mentioning her in the context of international law, and, and I and I just wanted to remind the listeners of that wonderful uh, transcript that had been made public during that whole Ukraine crisis uh, with her and another State Department official, in which she said to F-U-C-K the UN because they weren't sorry. I I, I believe it was over, you know. I, I, a new liaison that they would be working with and and what the UN wanted and what they wanted in terms of getting it done quicker. And she's like, you know, F the UN. And I'm thinking that's classic. We weren't getting our way. So F the international body. We're going to do it our way. And it, it, it might not have been that blatant in terms of like what she what the context, but it just shows her, you know, this, uh, you know, just disrespect for uh, the EU, also in the right. same conversation, and, and the in the UN, when it comes down to it, we just want to do it our way. Yeah, the uh, you know, there's an interesting blob related uh, story about her. Uh, whenever she uh, first entered the Obama administration, um, I at that point I was running this little meta blog thing called the Progressive Realist that drew on different blogs, but we ran a little piece 
saying like, wait a second, what is Obama doing bringing this woman in? She was in Dick Cheney's office, you know, and although technically that that's like uh, not a politically appointed position, you know, damn well, Dick Cheney was was deciding who would and would not work in his office. Uh, and although, look, you know, uh, there can be disagreement within marriages, as probably many of us know, you know, she is married to the famous neocon Bob Kagan. But in any event, we wrote this little piece about that and we got we got blowback and we weren't even very a prominent place. Right. But 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 this was seen and we got blowback from across the spectrum of the blob about how completely unacceptable um, it was to cast dispersions on a civil servant or something or other. But it was amazing <laughs> how how bipartisan the blowback was because it is a single network, right? Some of them could call themselves uh, liberal internationalists and some neocons and whatever. But by and large, they go to the same parties or did before COVID, you know, they do favors for one another. And they don't say very bad things about each other. And, and you know, that to me was a very telling fact. And I have to, I have to pat us on the back in retrospect to oppression. I mean, she, she went into Ukraine and uh, I don't know how much of this was her own initiative, but, you know, she, uh, I think in retrospect, uh, was involved in causing a lot of trouble there. Yeah. Exactly, with her giving away sandwiches to the Ukrainian military the, yeah. in Kiev. And yeah, I mean, we we had a role to play in the overthrow of the government there. And I don't think anyone acknowledges that today. We sort of conveniently sweep that under that part of the story under the rug, uh, because there are so many people, like you mentioned, particularly in that in, uh, liberal internationalist group that still believe in democracy promotion. And uh, you don't want to acknowledge that sometimes when you're engaging in it, you know, you, you, you might not like, you know, what you get. And in this case, it was the overthrow of a government and, um, you know, Crimea, we know the whole history beyond yeah. that. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, and Victoria Nuland, I believe, was part and parcel of that. And I do believe that there are people. She's still in. She's still in government now. She's been hired uh, by yeah. Biden, and I guess she's been let back into Russia after being banned. But you know, people of her ilk are still around. They still believe in in democracy promotion, and they will not acknowledge what they did had serious repercussions. Uh, for that Ukraine-Russia relationship that, that we're feeling today. You're, look at the headlines. Right. Yeah, what you said about you may not like what you get reminds me of when, uh, you know, the Bush administration said, sure, Hamas can participate in this election. And then and then they won, right? And we're like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid that's unacceptable. Yeah. And then, and then not surprisingly, Hamas uh, exercises force to to try to maintain power when we... Uh, and and uh, you know it's uh, it's just I, I just think we we uh, we need to uh, do a lot less of trying to remake the world in 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 our in our image. I mean, it would be one thing if we were going to be consistent about it, you know, about uh, like democracy promotion and weren't going to sell uh, weapons to brutal dictatorships in the Middle East and so on. Uh, but w our our politics do not permit us to be consistent about this. Well, I wanted since we only have a few minutes left, and and, and this is our last episode of Crashing the War Party. 
uh, for the year. We're, we'd love to ask you what you feel was the, the most impactful foreign policy national security story of the year. And I'd like to ask Dan the same thing. Um, and maybe which one you felt like didn't get as much attention as it should. Well, let's see, this may be repetitious. I, I think the most heartening development of the year is that the term blob is now firmly entrenched in our vocabulary. You know, Jerry Brown used the word in a tweet yesterday. Uh, you remember him? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, uh, the banality of the blob was his tweet. Um, it, it, it's, uh, and I really do kind of think that's, that's important. I mean, it, it, it means there is now a coalition of people who are determined to hold uh, the foreign policy establishment's feet to the fire. So I, th I think that might be my positive story of the year. I mean, as far as I'm not aware of kind of a single egregiously underreported story. And, and so here, I guess I'll have to repeat what I already said. The most consistently underreported story is the other side of the story, is the perspective of countries we deem our adversaries, whether it's Russia or China or Iran. And I think the most common specific failure there is the failure to understand that some of the things we view as offensive in nature uh, are, are from their point of view defensive in nature, even if they involve the projection of regional power. I mean, we've always thought of the projection of regional power as defensive. During the Cold War, we thought we had to stage coups all over the world to protect the American homeland. And, and we still have an expansive view of where threats can emanate from. And I think that often happens uh, with adversaries. And uh, that's just a consistently underreported fact. What about you, Dan? Right. And I think the most significant story, and I mean, it is getting some coverage now uh, as it's beginning to dawn on people how big it is, but it's, I think the most significant one this year is the looming famine in Afghanistan, uh, which is being uh, created uh, by the, the shutoff of aid and the shutoff of uh, access to Afghan assets in Western banks. Uh, and that, and of course, it's, it's compounding problems that already existed in, in the form of drought and, and food insecurity and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're looking at a winter where uh, potentially uh, millions and millions of people are going to die uh, for, for lack of food. Uh, when it could readily be, readily be provided to them if we would simply turn the spigot back on. And, and it's, it's kind of baffling to me that there's any debate about this, that there's actually a, a, a pro-famine side to this debate. Uh, it, it's it's uh, kind of horrifying, actually. Uh, and, and what we also see is that attention uh, towards Afghanistan is basically vanished uh, since the withdrawal. Uh, when it was going, when the withdrawal was going on, it was the the lead story every day for two weeks, and then the media decided, or, or, or they, they all seem to have decided together that it doesn't matter anymore. And so, uh, the possibly the largest modern famine on record is about to happen, and and nobody, and it's almost unheard of. Uh, and the the probably the most underreported story, and this is my hobby horse, uh, but. The, the most underreported story in the world uh, is still Yemen, uh, which uh, is also facing uh, famine and uh, a massive humanitarian crisis that continues to get worse as time goes by. And so uh, that's that's one that uh, 
really has also fallen off the map. Uh, really, uh, ever since the the big fight about the war powers resolution a couple of years ago, and after that, it, it's as if everybody just went on with their business. And so that th- those are unfortunately two pretty depressing stories. But I think those are the ones that we need to remember. I totally agree. I was just thinking about Afghanistan this morning and all the people who were emoting about the fate of, right. you know, Afghan citizens, they happen to know. Uh, right. And, and th- that's totally understandable and fine and good that you worry about anybody's welfare. Uh, but but all of the emoting on MSNBC and CNN and, and everywhere else, where where is that now that massive numbers of Af- Afghans are, are, are threatened? And as you said, it isn't just the sanctions, which are bad enough and which are a scandal in various countries, uh, especially during a pandemic. But there there are assets that belong to the government of Afghanistan, and we're refusing to acknowledge that it's the game is over. The government is the Taliban, like it or not. Right. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you, Dan, on the Yemen issue, because I feel like I, this year is just blown by. But it was just, you know, well, it was almost a year ago that President Biden, newly elected and inaugurated, made uh, a point of saying that he wanted to help end the Yemen war and would begin by not selling the Saudis def- uh, anything but defensive weaponry in that effort to end that war. What happened? You know, it's almost a year and the, it seems as though the, the dip in, diplomatic process has has foundered. The only debates we've had over, is over whether or not weapon systems are defensive or offensive because the White House seems determined to sell Saudi weapons. And so we just had a debate on the Hill about whether or not they should sell them. I believe it was, I don't want to get the, 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 the price tag wrong, but it was something maybe like $165 million worth of air-to-air missiles and, 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 uh, and other things. And Senator Rand Paul stood up and says, no, he issued, he and Mike Lee and Bernie Sanders bipartisan effort to thwart the sale and it failed because Congress doesn't have a backbone. But, you know, those were the only debates that we've had over Yemen uh, in a very public way that's been covered by the media. Otherwise, the the administration has done very little, it seems to me. And, you know, people are smarter than me, experts like Anel Sheline, who works with me at Quincy, has been following this. Um, They really haven't done anything diplomatically to, you know, get that blockade lifted. So those so the Yemeni people are aren't starving and uh, susceptible to, to, to disease. And um, yeah, so I, I'm very disappointed in that. Um, also agree with both of you on Afghanistan. You know, as an editor at the American Conservative and now at Responsible Statecraft, you know, it's very disheartening because the, the stories on Afghanistan before the withdrawal really drew no traffic whatsoever at either mm-hmm. magazines I was working for. And, you know, and, 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 and it seemed as though people were just tired of it after 20 years there, you know, there, it just didn't spark any interest. The only time it did is when it became political. So when Trump announced he wanted to get out or Trump signed the Doha agreement with the Taliban, yeah, then you get the flurry of, headlines and the traffic starts building again. And the same with the withdrawal itself because it was dramatic 
it, there was, it was chaotic. It was political. There were people in Washington talking about it. And then, like you said, Dan, after that, when it's really requiring that we really need the heavy lifting and the elbow grease to get in there and, and, and help those people, the media has no interest in it. It doesn't seem like the American people have any interest. And it's, it's very sad. Well, unfortunately, on that rather grim note, I think we should wrap it up. Uh, we, we went a little bit long today, uh, but we really appreciate having you on, Bob. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, uh, happy holidays to you and uh, to our listeners. Same to you. And, and thanks again for having me. Oh, thank you so much for all you do. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.